0: Democracy. <laughs> <Destruction>. <laughs> Crime From threatening freedom. We fail. And freedom
1: fails. Hi, welcome to Out of Order, DMF podcast, exploring how our world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausempfreun the editorial director of the German Marshall Fund from the Berlin office. And I'm back in the fold, if unfortunately only virtually, with my favorite co-host, Peter Sparding, GMF fellow uh, focusing on economics and Germany. Hi, Peter. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Uh, And we have with us today um, two experts on Russia, Eurasia, and information. They are David Salvo, who's a resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund, Uh, with the Alliance for Securing Democracy Project. He's a Russia expert, Eurasia expert, and a local rock star. Hi, David. How
0: are you doing, Rachel? Good to be here.
1: Thanks. And also we have Brett Schaefer from the Alliance for Securing Democracy Program. He's the communication coordinator who tracks two uh, really interesting projects, the Hamilton 68 and Article 38, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Hi, Brett.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks. So these two gentlemen are joining us because today we want to talk about efforts that are being undertaken to to weaken democracies and democratic institutions. The most famous example is um, Russia in the 2016 U.S. elections. Um, And so we're going to talk about disinformation and attacks against uh, democracy, maybe of other hybrid kinds, and also probably eventually get to the fact of does this really matter outside of, let's say, U.S. politics or elections? David, to start us off, what are we looking at? What exactly are these disinformation ta- attacks? We can start with the U.S. democracy, or if you want to talk about Europe, uh, that's fine, too.
0: Well, I, I think what we're seeing is the Russians using a broad range of tools. Um, it's not just disinformation on traditional social media platforms, although, of course, that's the most visible evidence of Russian let's call it hybrid tactics or uh, influence campaigns. and I mean they, they've been using these tools essentially since Soviet times just the technology has evolved and so the campaigns that they're waging here in the United States and across Europe and frankly in other parts of the world including uh, Latin America, Um, These aren't new tactics. It's just that they're using platforms like Facebook and and Twitter, which obviously are only so old. We're seeing the spread of either anti-American or anti-Western narratives, or we're seeing um, overt support for a particular political candidate. Um, and you know, it's not even that the Russians always have a particular person in mind that they're promoting. It's that they're trying to exploit existing divisions in a particular country, uh, be they racial class, political and otherwise. And so we, you know, we've seen this here in the States, but we've also seen it in several other countries, including where you're based in Germany.
1: Okay. You mentioned disinformation is part of a kind of broader hybrid attack. Would you say, and I you can, I can throw this either to you, David again, or to Brett. What are sort of the main branches of these hybrid attacks? And are there certain methods that are newer, more different, more powerful?
0: I'll start, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll kick it over to Brett, uh, and I'll leave aside some of the disinformation stuff because Brett tracks that on a daily basis for our dashboards. But some of the other tools the Russians use are um, obviously cyber infiltrations, and not just into government networks, but also into private companies and, and even critical infrastructure illicit finance, so moving money around, uh, laundering money through real estate transactions and other uh, shell companies, economic and political influence that they gain either through uh, energy ties with other countries or by supporting political parties or NGOs and other civic organizations in foreign countries. So these are some of the tools that the Russians use besides the disinformation that we see on a daily basis. Maybe, Brett, you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what The difference between the disinformation that we see now and that we saw in Soviet times is during Soviet times, if you look at Soviet ideology, it was trying to attract people to communism and to a socialist way of life. There was an effort to reach um, the far left, both in the US and in Europe in a way of this sort of brotherhood ideology of the working man, we don't see that anymore. When we see disinformation online, there's really no attempt, at least what we see targeting U.S. audiences, of trying to promote Russia as being somehow the best option in the world or even promoting Putin as being the great leader. I mean, we see a little bit of that, but most of it is trying to undermine Our own institutions so we see that in europe we see that in the us we see this promotion of the idea of the deep state that's a very very common thread that we see on the dashboard is don't trust the fbi don't trust the cia there's somehow this broader operation going on that you're not aware of and that really it's less of an effort to say russia is better than other countries then your country is as corrupt if not worse than we are And just don't trust anything that you read, you see, and and to get to the point where U.S. society, European society stops trusting the democratic process and stops trusting the idea of objective information in general.
0: Yeah, Brett's right. And I'd add that there is a domestic component to what the Russians are doing too. So they may not be trying to track people towards a particular political ideology, but what they are trying to do is show their own citizens, look how... Uh, degraded the West is, look how messy and corrupt democracy is. Um, And it's a way to justify their own autocratic, uh, or they call it, you know, managed democracy that they have in Russia. Um, And so it's a a way for Putin's regime to prop itself up, uh, despite all the uh, negative demographic, economic and other trends that are taking place in Russia. So an external boogeyman is good. And if the West can be that, can fulfill that role, then the Russians have a motive motive for doing what they're doing.
2: And also when you get to a place when citizens stop really caring about what's happening because they get to the point where they're sort of demoralized, they don't trust anything, they don't believe in anything. When you don't have an active citizenry, that's good for an autocrat because that means people are not protesting in the streets. They just get to the point where they say, I can't do anything. I can't trust anything. Therefore, I'm going to retreat and just not be involved.
3: So can I uh, jump in and and ask a quick question? Do you think that the—let's look at the U.S. for a second here—that U.S. population or voters are more receptive to this now? Why? I mean, you mentioned that they're exploiting existing divisions. But, for example— um, Brett, you, you were talking about distrust in the FBI, which as far as I could tell until very recently, especially on the political center right, was a revered institution. And now we see these these attacks, but they're coming from existing political actors. They're not only coming from the outside, right? So it's on Fox News, you can see questions being raised about the integrity of the FBI. So I'm wondering what makes this different now? Is it that we've just had 20, 30 years of broadening divisions and it, the time was ripe, so to speak? or um how do you explain that this is now such a prevalent uh, situation?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure I can fully answer that because this would be a guess, but I mean, you have to think the fact that, yes, for twenty or thirty years you've seen this widening of divisions. You've also seen hyperpartisan voices in the media become more of the mainstream media. So Fox News started as being the sort of hyperpartisan right-leaning network. They're now sort of center-right, if not center, when you look at the total media sphere. I mean, Breitbart now is even closer to the center when you look at some of the stuff we see online. So media, um, hyper-partisanship is one thing. Also, we see it in just political discourse, obviously going all the way up to the executive branch, that there is this idea now that in the past, I don't think you ever would have seen a president or senators talking about don't trust the FBI, where we do see that kind of language now. And that filters down, obviously, to
0: people. I think I think there are mainstream politicians who are responding to a constituency that they have. They they understand that there is a segment of their electorate that sees the world this way. And so cynically or not, they're trying to court those people. Of course, like what Brett said, it, it doesn't help when the White House doesn't necessarily acknowledge the threat. But, you know, leaving leaving that aside, I think there's just a broadening constituency in the American electorate that sees the world this way because of, you know, more fringe outlets that are gained, you know, through online media are gaining more and more traction and therefore, that, you know, People are susceptible to these arguments and politicians are responding to it.
3: So then these outside actors are basically adding on to this, but it's an existing division or a situation we've already seen for a while. Yeah, I
2: mean, there's, it's always a chicken and egg kind of question of are they just smart enough to jump on an existing division? Are they creating that division? I think probably it's a little bit of both, but it's more of seeing these small cracks understanding that there is a potential there and then jumping on that and making that crack into a wide chasm. So, I mean, when you talk about media, media in the U.S. is for profit. So they've targeted audiences. They've seen What audiences respond to well? I mean, you've seen all of these networks, CNN included, of drifting farther from the center because they understand when you push out content that riles up your audience base, that sells. So that's why they have gone more to hyper-partisan coverage because that's what people watch and that's what people want. So it's tough to blame the media without blaming us in general because... The media is responding to what people want and what people are buying and what people are watching. So I think we're kind of all to blame in terms of where we are right now.
1: Um, I want to jump in here to see if we can focus in on an example with this case. The difficulty in this conversation is exactly like Peter pointed to, you know, what is, what is exactly Russia's doing? What are they, you know, initiating or exacerbating? What are they doing and what are the existing problems or faults that they may be just um, capitalizing on? And um, so then we're talking about the with this example of the media and the media kind of seeing where they can get a market and they can increase their ratings and therefore increase their um, profits. Is that, you know, is this an example of this is an American problem, or do we also see Russia playing a role here, right? So are they also funding maybe some media outlets? Are they, you know, I don't know if either of you can do this, but um, to use this as a example and say, this part of it is kind of homegrown and this part of it, we see real Russian influence.
0: Well, what what the Russians do in places like Europe, for example, is, I mean, they they're, the Kremlin sponsored news agencies like RT and Sputnik have off like they're they disseminate their news across the European media space. And in some places, like in the Balkans, for example, they provide content for free to local news agencies. So Balkan outlets will then disseminate Russian spun news to their own population, their own readership or audience. So that that happens, and uh, Western news agencies don't necessarily provide the same content for free. So in a sense, we're at a disadvantage because there's a foreign government that is sponsoring out of their own budget uh, news to be distributed to foreign news outlets who will then take this Kremlin narrative and blast it out to their, their audience.
2: Yeah, I would say in, in terms of what we look at on Twitter with the 600 accounts that we monitor that we have decided are Kremlin-oriented, there's two different categories. The first, it's content that you'd consider domestically targeted. That tends to be these accounts jumping on material that's already out there. So they will promote hyperpartisan sites or conspiracy theories that already sort of exist. I don't think they're creating these. But on the other side, we see then them pushing geopolitical topics. This tends to be their strict narrative. So we'll see RT and Sputnik. And when they're discussing what's happening in Syria or Ukraine, you're seeing a very strict pro-Kremlin line being pushed, both in terms of the sites that they are promoting through URLs and also just the hashtags and content. I mean, it, it's, it's very strict and regimented in terms of geopolitical content of being pro-Kremlin, in terms of the the material that's targeting the sort of domestic audience in the U.S., that tends to be them just trying things out and jumping on whatever sort of narrative or conspiracy or scandals out there and exists and they promote it, but they're not responsible for creating
3: it. Can I? Uh, so, first of all, I think in the DC area, Sputnik recently replaced a very popular bluegrass station on the radio frequency, which I was very upset about. Can, do you have an idea? So, we have RT, of course, here in the US too, and in, in Western Europe. And I don't have a, a good sense of how far their reach is, or, or Sputnik and RT do they play a role or do they play a role more through what you just described as they they have stories that then get spun out online and so on? Because I don't, it doesn't seem like they have a large evening viewership like uh, the other news st- uh, stations do.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. In terms of their traditional audiences, if you look at Nielsen ratings, I mean, they don't even participate in the Nielsen ratings. But if you look at what they're drawing nightly, I mean, they're not in the top 200 of channels in the US. So they, they, really don't have much of a footprint online or sorry, on traditional TV, radio, and I would guess most people that you'd ask on the street in the U.S. wouldn't be able to tell you where to find RT.
3: Although they have recruited some known U.S. Uh, anchors, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a very shrewd move that they do, and they I think they more or less let the Larry Kings of the world do what they want, because then Larry King will go out and say, I'm not being told what to say. This is the first time I've ever been on a news outlet where there hasn't been an agenda. I'm allowed to talk about topics that I'm not allowed to talk about in the U.S. media. I mean, there are great... Sort of front-facing tool for them to say, this is a credible news agency. We have credible U.S. voices. But if you keep watching, then you get the story of the U.S. funding ISIS in Syria, and it gets a little bit more conspiratorial, or you would say just Kremlin propaganda. But they push out these credible faces to be the front-facing people of the network because it gives them legitimacy.
1: I want to—I want to— Backtrack just a second, because you mentioned, Brett, you know, the Twitter accounts that you track. Maybe you can give us the background of that a bit, because I think we jumped in in the middle. What is the project doing and what's the sort of goal behind it? And then what's the, the layman's version of the methodology? We don't need all 20 pages, but.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I'll let Dave talk a little bit more about what the Alliance does in general. I sort of more specifically stay in the lane of disinformation. So I look at two dashboards that we've created The Hamilton 68 website, which looks at Twitter operations in America, and Article 38 that looks at the same thing in Germany. So, the Hamilton 68 website was set up by four guys who have been in counterterrorism and information warfare, and they've been tracking certain Twitter accounts for years. And they got onto this because they were counterterrorism guys. They were looking into what was going on in Syria— and all of a sudden, they started seeing this swarming activity from Russian actors. And that's what sort of sparked their interest. They became interested in Russian trolls because Russian trolls became interested in them. These 600 accounts that we look at, they're in three broad categories. The first are overtly pro-Russian accounts. That's Sputnik, RT, and also figures that we know are connected to the Kremlin. Then we have the bots and the trolls that also are just consistently repeating those messages from that first layer of account. And then the third layer of accounts are what we call the influence accounts. So this might include some real American users who just happen to consistently put out the same narratives, the same hashtags that we're seeing from the bots and the trolls and the overtly pro-Kremlin accounts. So from all those together, we're looking at the broader information operation. We're not trying to expose any account as being a Russian operative or a Russian troll that's really not what the project's about. The idea is to understand what they're talking about and what divisions they're trying to exploit online. And we'd also do that in Germany as well, using roughly the same methodology.
0: Yeah, so the alliance is involved on, in many lines of effort. We started by cataloging all the examples of Russian malign influence across the transatlantic space. So the tools I referenced earlier from Cyber to state economic coercion, political influence through funding of parties and civic organizations, uh, the illicit financing. We've been documenting that in a comprehensive bibliography. Using that body of evidence, as well as our conversations with Europeans and Americans who are thinking about these issues, we're also in the process of putting together a comprehensive playbook of policy recommendations. That wouldn't just be oriented uh, towards government, although that will obviously be a part of it, but we'll also be looking at recommendations for the NGO sector, for media, for uh, the private sector. So all the aspects of society, Western society that Russian malign influence campaigns affect, we will be putting forward recommendations for them. So that's another line of effort. The I'd say the final line of effort that we haven't yet started but we're hoping to in a couple of months is domestic outreach. And so, I mean, as the as the 2016 elections have shown, there are millions of Americans who simply do not agree with our narrative that there is a foreign actor that is trying to undermine democratic institutions and processes. So – We want to take the conversation that we have ad nauseum in Washington and take it on the road on a bipartisan basis or a nonpartisan basis to demonstrate to the the broader American public that there's a threat out there that affects not just us in Washington, but it affects the lives and livelihoods of Americans all over the country, their businesses, how they consume media – their electoral processes. So that's the forward-looking piece uh, that the alliance is going to be uh, starting up later this year. So
1: my, my sense of, you know, these, these, this different cataloging you said of the different methods, it seems like the conversation in the U.S. in particular, but I would say even in Europe, um, has really focused in on the disinformation part, you know, and social media. And for example, the you know kind of soft money or money influence has been less in the headlines, and I don't know if that's just because you know the evidence is easier to collect on the one side, or you know is the disinformation just the most obvious? But um, maybe you have an answer to that, right? Well, um, well, well,
0: I think that's part of it. It is. I mean, disinformation is tangible. I mean, we track it on Twitter, right? It's harder to investigate the money, and and Brad, I don't know if you want to talk about, we're starting to do some of that ourselves.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a sexier story to be able to put out some meme that they can connect back to the internet research agency and show that they bought an ad that was portraying Hillary as Satan. I mean, that's just, that's a, that's good copy for a journalist, whereas they, I mean, they can write that story in half a day. We're getting into the money trails, that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort, and it takes some knowledge of understanding how shell and shelf companies work and where the intermediaries are happening. So I think why we see more disinformation is because it's an easier story. It's a somewhat sexier story. But I think you're right that in terms of the threat level, disinformation is probably on the lower end of the tier of the threats we're looking at from Russia.
1: Plus, if, if I'm not wrong, I mean, it would, I would suspect in this third stage that David was talking about, going out to the people and convincing them that this is a problem— you know, my sense is given the divisions in the media landscape that we already talked about, right, and, you know, somebody's skepticism about CNN or about, you know, any media telling them the truth, um, you might have an easier time convincing people if you come with the money stories because they're they're very inclined to... Um, be skeptical or worried about corruption,
0: right? I, I think that's right. I, yeah, and, and the point of taking this conversation to the American public is not to convince them, for example, to watch CNN or to vote for a Democrat or a Republican or a Never Trumper or anything like that. It's about presenting them with evidence and letting them form their own conclusions. You know, digging up the money trail. That's there will be hard evidence that we could present to people, showing them narratives on social media. That is evidence that we could present to people that's part of the purpose of the dashboard is to catalog this evidence you know without spin or analysis and, and so people could form their own conclusions so this is exactly the type of conversation that we want to be having and it would be even strong and stronger argument on our behalf when we have representatives of either both parties or former military veterans or people who are who have respected authority without you know coming pitching a particular Partisan narrative. Uh, I think we'd be able to sell this this story uh, a lot more successfully than, say, the CNNs or the Fox Newses of the world can do, trying to convince people who otherwise wouldn't wouldn't listen to them.
2: Also, I mean, if you look at the lessons learned. Um, in terms of Ukraine and Georgia. I mean, the threats that we're seeing now are a bit abstract for people, but all of these different hybrid techniques that they use, they're very real for the people in Eastern Europe, particularly Ukraine, where all of these things have been used in an active hot war. So showing the parallels between the two that, yes, this right now may be a little bit abstract, but it is being used in places in a very real way with very damaging uh, impacts, I think that's important as well.
0: Yeah, I think... Brett's right. It's hard for – understandably hard for Americans to wrap their heads around this because we're not preparing for a kinetic threat from the Russians. I mean let's not kid ourselves. We're we're not. The Russians aren't coming to invade us. But the Russians have invaded their neighbors um, and they've used these hybrid tools to set up uh, a kinetic invasion. That doesn't mean that's what they're doing here. They're not. But – they're still using these tools here and in other European countries in ways that they have used along their periphery for many years. So I think trying to make those case studies tangible and relevant for the American public, as Brett said, is also a part of this story, part of this discussion.
3: So can I uh, jump in and ask a question that's a bit of a, a tricky one or maybe devil's advocate? I I wonder if, um, especially in Europe or so, when you when we present this this kind of work, are you sometimes confronted with the question where people are saying, "Isn't this just what superpowers or big powers do to each other? This is you know, this is the game, or uh, hasn't the U.S. done this, uh, or the West in general?" Um, what's your take on this? Why are you are you getting these questions, and and what do you say to them? If what makes this uh, different than than other issues? You want to I'm
0: going to take it.
2: I'll let you start. I'll, All right, I'll start. Um,
3: I don't.
0: I don't know if I get that. Maybe I'm just talking to like-minded people in Europe. Um, it's a fair. I've, I've gotten that question from Americans. My answer, and it, it may be a weak answer. My answer to it is. We've copped to what we've done, right? I mean, the height of the Cold War in the '50s and '60s was the CIA uh, running influence operations in in countries that were, you know, considered battleground states. Yeah, of course, of course, and we've admitted to it, right? That's not this isn't classified information that I'm revealing here. Um, I feel there was a movie or two about it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that's a key difference, and we don't we don't do we're not engaged in this sort of hybrid warfare. Uh, that the Russians, it is in Russian military doctrine that they will use these hybrid tools to undermine the West in the United States. I mean, that is, it is open that that is the, that is a Russian strategic objective. It is not our strategic objective to undermine Russia per se, right? We're not, I don't see NATO, for example, as an anti-Russian alliance, whereas they perceive NATO as an anti-Russian alliance. For, for us, I think, You know, we see our strategic threats as emanating from elsewhere, terrorism, the Middle East. We don't see Russia, qua Russia as a threat, but because they've now, they're engaging in these hybrid tactics, we have to sort of reorient ourselves. That doesn't mean we copy what they do. So I think when Americans say, well, yeah, you know, we do this too, it's, well, we might have waged similar campaigns in our past, but we don't really anymore using these sorts of tactics. You know, okay, Voice of America, for example, is an open, uh, influence campaign, but it's not necessarily propaganda, right? It's about reporting information to populations that otherwise wouldn't have any access to uh, Western news. Yeah, I mean, you have to compare the journalistic standards of Voice of America to RT and Sputnik. I mean,
2: we get that frequently of how are you going after RT? If you go after RT, you have to shut down the BBC and France 24 and Deutsche Welle. They're not the same. They're really not comparable. So that's just this, this false equivalency to say that what RT and Sputnik are doing are the same of what our foreign broadcasters are doing. But also, just to piggyback on Dave's thing, I think we still have this open debate and discussions in the U.S., also in Europe. And it's not to say that at times, America and other superpowers haven't abused certain powers and gone too far. But as he said, we we cop to that, and there's some level of... We still have to answer to... There are checks and balances still in a way that there are not. In Russia. I mean, they still don't openly admit that they're in Ukraine. I mean, whatever you want to say about what we did in Iraq and the Middle East, we never said, That's oh, I, I don't know who those guys yeah. are. They just stole some uniforms. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. And then a year later say, well, they were there. They are our guys, but we were protecting Americans there. I mean, there, there's just, there is a difference.
0: Yeah. And, and there's this, you know, conspiracy theories that the, the CIA just runs amok and does whatever it wants all over the world. And I mean, I'm telling you, as somebody who worked in the national security establishment uh, for over a decade, I mean, it's just fundamentally not true. Whereas the Russian security services really do have carte blanche to conduct operations without any real legal oversight because they don't have legal oversight in the way that Congress has legal oversight over the intelligence community here. So it really, it, it's an apples and oranges sort of issue. The Jason Bourne movies have not helped. Uh, no, I'm <laughs> sure they haven't. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, one point that's interesting, and, and maybe that's um, a really helpful distinction. I mean, it's not a distinction that probably some are going to necessarily appreciate, but this kind of journalistic standards, right? The journalistic standards of the BBC or Deutsche Welle are fundamentally different from RT. Um, This raises the question, is there some domestic media in the United States that has journalistic standards that are sort of going in the direction of RT that then makes it hard for us to kind of draw that same line? You know, the other thing, Brett said this very early, I think, that if one distinction is journalistic standards, maybe the other distinction is in contrast to similar efforts that uh the U.S. and others did in the past, or in contrast to probably, you know, um, now we call it public di- diplomacy or public diplomacy efforts. One is about attracting, which is to say, you know, look at this way of, you know, method of government. Look at this um, you know, these are human rights standards that are great. This is a form of government that is great. You know, look how great America is, or, you know, China is doing that, right? Like with the Confucian centers, Look how great China is, look at our economic growth, look at how many people we are pulling out of poverty, but it's a sort of positive message that's met at selling your own system. Whereas, you know, at some point, um, the Russians abandoned the idea of selling their own system and, are focused really only on weakening other systems. Is that, I mean, and, and is Russia unique in that way?
0: I think, I mean, you, I think you just captured it in a nutshell. There's, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to sell a positive image of your country. I mean, even the Russians have cultural centers scattered across uh, the West uh, and the Chinese do it and we do it and other nations do it, the Germans do it. I, I don't see anything objectively wrong in doing that. I think it's, as you said, When you abandon that and your tactics are solely about undermining the other uh, in order to portray them as weak, degraded, and corrupt to your own population, that you run into problems. And frankly, it's ultimately a bankrupt argument because of our rule of law and human rights, respect for human rights generally speaking. Uh, We will always be a more attractive option right? I mean, there's a reason why people are still trying to immigrate to to the West and see us as the beacon and not other countries or other parts of the world.
2: But yeah, I mean, to Dave's point, I mean, it's very difficult right now to figure out what Russian ideology is. Like, what are they selling to the world? And the way that you could see that during Soviet times, whatever you thought about it, there was at least there was some attractive principle that they were trying to bring people into their orbit that doesn't seem to exist anymore. I'm not sure what you would say about modern Russia is something that is going to draw other countries to it as being something other than the strong man idea of yeah. Putin being this strong leader, which clearly is attractive to some people around the world. But otherwise, I'm not sure what, what they have that is attractive.
0: Yeah, I mean, Russian ideology today is essentially wrapped around nationalism and orthodoxy, Russian orthodoxy. I mean, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional country, of course, but really, you know, Russian national identity is, is the uh, intersection of nationalism and orthodoxy. So how does that resonate with people who, who don't live in Russia or aren't ethnically Russian, you know? So there's, Brett's right. There's an absence of, of overarching ideal ideology that would otherwise attract people to Russia. Whereas there still is in the West, the West still represents a set of ideals, right? Divorced from ethnicity, national, nationality. So I, I think Brett's analogy is, is right.
1: I think this has been interesting and, you know, we, we really only touched the surface, but we'll keep coming back to it and also see, you know, see our progress, further progress in undermining our own systems and helping Russia out that way. But let's, before we all take off, let's jump to our, um, as Peter said last time, infamous, famous...
3: Legendary. Legendary,
1: legendary, thinker tank segment, which is um, where everyone says, what's making you think or what really tanked, uh, in your opinion, in the past week or so?
3: I can go first if you want. Um, I have a, as always, a, because I'm such a positive guy, I have a positive recommendation. And that's a, a podcast that I've recently come to listen to. It's called Uncivil. It's by Gimlet Media. And they are looking at mostly civil war history, but looking, uh, as they say, the the history behind the history. They're exploring a lot of these myths that um, play actually a quite a big role in today's narrative still in American politics. So I've really enjoyed listening to that.
1: Wow, interesting. Is that like a weekly?
3: Uh, they're, Every other week or so, they, it's really heavily researched, so it's, it's, it's quite highly um, produced. I'm sure they're very thankful that this smaller podcast is recommending them, so <laughs> maybe, maybe we can get a reverse going there.
0: Um, I'll give one wonky answer, one normal answer. I was looking at my bookshelf yesterday uh, randomly, just at all my old books from college and grad school, and uh, came across David Hoffman's excellent expose of uh, the Russian oligarchy, called The Oligarchs, um, and I highly recommend that book to uh, our audience if they're interested in understanding how this system, this political system in Russia came into being. It's just a fascinating, fascinating uh, book. It, and it's, it's dated now, but you know, <laughs> it's still relevant, quite relevant. Uh, my normal answer would be to say, and I don't really listen to podcasts, but there's one I do listen to. It's called Welcome to Night Vale. And it's a fictional public radio station with sort of very avant-garde type of humor. Uh, I find it hilarious. Not everyone would. But I really recommend that our listeners give it a try. Welcome to Night Vale. So I'm going to stay
2: on topic here with a think
0: and a tank. So my
2: think would be to read The Red Web. So to piggyback on Dave's idea, if you want to learn more about this, it's a book by two Russian – I mean, I guess you'd call them hackers, white hat hackers. And it's really about how the Kremlin's online information system works, and it's just a great overview of this. My tank would be this week's Fake News Awards, which tanked because, literally— Because you got snubbed. <laughs> yeah. We, we were recommended by some people on our Twitter feed for that. Uh, it literally tanked because the website crashed when it went up. But also, all of the, all of the Fake News Awards were actually— what you would consider mistakes by journalists. Almost all of them were uh, things that there were retractions printed about it. They acknowledged the mistake. And this is where we need to differentiate between bad reporting or sloppy reporting or rushed reporting and truly fake news, which is generally created for profit or specifically to mislead people. So I would like my tank in general is using the term fake news for news you dislike, as opposed to fake news, which is a thing and has been a thing for a very long time, which is incorrect information specifically put out to mislead people.
1: You know, I um, I tried kind of hard to come up with a tank this week because I, by nature, also try to um, find stuff that I'd like to talk about and that made me think. Um, and I found one, though, um, with the help of the with the lovely leader of Hungary, Orban, who, and it's also happens to be rather on topic. So yes, Orban announced earlier this week, the Stop Soros package, which is designed to tax NGOs or otherwise punish them for helping illegal migrants. Now helping illegal migrants is in quotes. um, First of all, because it basically defines asylum seekers as illegal immigrants, uh, which is a big problem. Secondly, um, you know, the labeling of the thing Stop Soros already tells you in the direction this is going in. So George Soros, for those of you who don't know, he's an American, but kind of international financier who has invested a lot of money in all kinds of different political projects, many of which are democracy promoting, civil society promoting, um, and promoting liberal causes. So he's sort of enemy number one for um, Viktor Orban, and and George Soros is also Jewish. So a lot of the kind of criticism and um, vitriol against him has a lot of anti-Semitic tones. K- Kass Muda on um, Twitter, he, I think, completely aptly called it uh, a prime example of Orwellian newspeak from Hungary's far-right government, because it's basically a fake answer to a fake problem that triggers all kinds of anxieties of the population. Um, and it's, it's a sad state of affairs. I am really sorry to end us on this terrible, terrible note. I guess, I guess whoever's hosting should think, uh, should come up with a think rather than a tank is the lesson of this segment. So let's hope that, yeah, that this goes nowhere in Hungary and that we'll have other good news soon. And um, in the meantime, keep up good work. And thanks a lot for joining me, Brett, David, and Peter.
3: Out of Order is a GMF podcast produced by Kelsey Glover with help from Natalie Himmel. Sound designed by Zachary Tarrant with help from Clara John.